This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey there, Tim Shepard with you for the Hack Podcast. What's your tip for getting a good night's sleep? Do you stay away from your phone? Do you play some kind of white noise? Are you tracking your sleep on an app? Because we all know that sleep is really important, right? But new research has found that we struggle with it when we've got a lot on our mind, especially if we've got exams coming up. We're going to speak to an expert about how you can try to sleep better when you're stressed. Also, the writer's strike that's been going on for nearly five months in the US could be coming to an end soon. We'll explain what's happening with it and what it could mean for Australia's industry. But let's start with something closer to home, though. Hack. Northern Territory Chief Minister Natasha Files has been left shaken after she was allegedly assaulted at a community event. On Triple J. Yeah, look, in Australia, it's pretty easy to bump into a politician on the street. They don't usually have security and they like to be seen getting out and about. But could that change? Because yesterday, the Northern Territory's Chief Minister was hit in the face with food while she was out meeting with voters. A woman's now been charged with aggravated assaults over the incident. But it's not the first time a politician's been allegedly assaulted, though. Remember when someone headbutted former Prime Minister Tony Abbott and the guy who cracked an egg over Senator Frazee Annin's head? Could incidents like this mean that our politicians become less accessible to us out of a fear of being harassed or attacked? Let me know your thoughts. You can message in on 0439 757555. We're going to chat to someone about this a little bit more in a minute. But first, Lillian Rangia is here to bring you up to speed on this story. You may have seen the video doing the rounds on socials. The NT's Chief Minister Natasha Files was at a local Darwin market for a community event on Sunday morning. She turned around and a woman pushed a plate of creamy pancakes into her face. It's unacceptable. Violence is never acceptable. Natasha Files spoke to journalists today with what looked like a bruise on her face. And I'm always up for a conversation. I'm always up for a tough conversation. But to whack someone in the face like that, I will call it for what it is. It is a violent act and it is unacceptable. It's pretty shocking footage and police charged a 56-year-old Susie Milgate with aggravated assault overnight. She's been bailed to appear in court next month. She told the ABC she believed Natasha Files had failed to listen to her concerns over crime rates and the NT government's mandatory COVID vaccine policy. And the alleged assault was a slight error. A cream pie is not an assault. It isn't the first run-in the Chief Minister has had with protesters. In May, she was harassed by anti-fracking protesters while running a 25-kilometre race in Alice Springs, and in April, protesters vandalised her office. And last month, police were called after environmentalists demonstrated outside her office. This alleged attack is before the courts, but the NT's Acting Deputy Police Commissioner Michael White says police are investigating whether there's any connection with anti-vax groups. Look, that certainly forms part of the investigation and we'll continue to uh, prepare the file for the prosecution and that will be part of the evidence if that's the case. In Darwin, politicians are pretty accessible and it's not uncommon to see them at the local markets, sporting fields and shops. But the Deputy Commissioner's says NT Police are now reviewing whether there's a need to ramp up police security. All members of Parliament, high office holders across the Northern Territory and Australia more broadly have been subject to verbal and other threats for some time and that's since the COVID pandemic. Certainly it's an issue facing all jurisdictions. 
In 2021, Australian Federal Police Commissioner Rhys Kershaw said an internal review of politician safety was underway and a specific task force was set up to protect politician security during last year's federal election. In the Territory, this is an issue that crosses the political divide. The government has condemned the attack on Natasha Files and so too has the Deputy Opposition Leader Jared Maley. There is no place for violence. If you want to show your dis respect or your hatred or your concerns to the Labor government, do it at the ballot box. Do not have any sort of violence. It's simply unacceptable. Hack on Triple J. Thank you so much to Lillian Rangia for bringing us that story out of Darwin. A few texts already coming in. Someone pointing out that Julia Gillard also used to have sandwiches thrown at her as well as a bottle. Well, look, I want to talk more about this story. Dr. Joshua Roos is here with us. He's an expert in extremism at Deakin Uni. Josh, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Good afternoon. Look, this year the Australian Federal Police said that they'd received a record number of threats against politicians. What do you think's behind it? Look, it's a significant concern um, and it's evolved um, in particular in the context of the pandemic. What we've seen is as, um, as populations, particularly the, the compounding impact of lockdown combined with um, you know, the vaccine mandates, various other public health measures to secure the safety of the wider population, many people um, you know, were stuck at home. There was this increase in frustration. Um, in, in really key here, though, is the influence of social media where people were engaging with some pretty extreme ideas and content online whilst they were at home. And, and we've seen this sort of deterritorialization, this big international sort of movement where we're seeing anti-government extremists target politicians globally. And you mentioned online. I want to ask whether people online, they're having like political discussions and they're getting quite aggravated and making threats that end they make their way up to the federal police. I mean, do you think that like the discourse that takes place online where people can find other people who think the same helps build up momentum? It certainly does. Um, there are entire forums and you've only got to get onto some of the encrypted messaging apps like Telegram or, or some of the other uh, forums where the content is extreme and arguably uh, violent extremism or inciting violent extremism. There is a lot of content um, full of hate, anger, but also quite targeted. Individuals are targeted for doxing um, and uh, obviously there's a, there's a real movement to, to try to attack, for example, left-wing activists uh, in particular, but also um, politicians. Uh, politicians are increasingly unable to go out in public without some form of security arrangement, which really stands contrary to the vast um, bulk of Australian history for our politicians. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I want to ask specifically about Natasha Files. I mean, I've seen comments about this news story where people are saying that they, they essentially think it's okay to throw food when it's a politician. Where do you think this idea of throwing food or, you know, projectiles at a politician has come from? Oh, there's a long history. Um, in particular, controversial politicians, um, uh, I think it's, you know, you've seen it in the UK, you've seen it in the US, although the US has a slightly different take when um, armed, armed guards are available as well. Mm. Um, but you do see it um, having some role throughout history, uh, that attempt to humiliate and to shame, um, you know, politicians that people don't agree with. Um, and, and it cuts both ways. It goes across the left and the right of spectrum. Fraser Anning, a far-right um, you know, associate, uh, or I shouldn't say associate, uh, someone who was, uh, you know, quite prominent in their support of far-right movements, um, was uh, pied in the face by a student in Melbourne. So it cuts across the spectrum. 
But what we've seen here, this um, this attack was actually, if, you, if you've seen the video, quite quite violent. Uh, someone who ran up and slammed a pie into the face of the chief minister. It's not acceptable in any democratic context, and it certainly won't be treated as such. What do you think that people are trying to achieve if they're harassing or even assaulting a politician? Is it about, in their minds, trying to bring attention to an issue or is it about shaming the politician? It's a combination. Uh, the individual um, who's alleged to have um, assaulted the, the chief minister uh, said that it was because he wasn't being listened to um, both about crime but also vaccine mandates. And so there's an, there's really a belief that um, politicians' bodies and and so on are public property and, and that you can basically humiliate, shame and even hurt um, politicians because, you know, particularly if you don't believe that the government has any legitimacy. And, and what we've seen is this fusion of anti-government actors really emerge out of the COVID uh, or out of the pandemic where, you know, you've got everything from freedom movements and sovereign citizens to conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers and even the far right who are converging in, in their sort of hatred and animosity towards democratic governance. We've seen targeting of local councils um, across Australia as well um, as state politicians, uh, federal politicians. This is the latest iteration of that, but it's a concerning escalation. This is Hack on Triple J. I'm speaking with Joshua Roos, an expert in extremism from Deakin Uni. We're talking about the NT chief minister having food shoved in her face over the weekend. Like, I also want to ask about protests as well. And Natasha Files was recently also followed by environmental protesters while competing in a running race. She says that that was harassment. Do you think protests can also cross a line if they go into the personal lives of politicians? Well, they, they certainly can. Um, politicians... Um, you occupy a unique space in, in our in our society. Uh, they're seen as representing a certain set of ideas. And so for many people who feel themselves to be impacted by the, those ideas, there's no on and off button. They feel that the politician, um, they don't see them as an employee or as a um, person who has a personal life. They see them as all-encompassing and representing something that they stand against. But really, again, the civility of our democratic discourse has just taken a nosedive over the last half decade, or you could argue the last couple of decades, uh, particularly because of the tabloid media and social media. People um, do have a right to a personal life. Um, politicians do have the right to you know, participate in charity runs or um, any form of um, public movement throughout public space without necessarily being attacked or harassed. Um, but again, these are issues that people feel very strongly about. And it's something that Australian um, politicians, um, our, our parliamentarians, but also our security and police agencies are going to have to come to terms with because I don't see it getting any better going forward. Well, I was going to ask because politicians in Australia generally don't have a security or at least a lot of security compared to some other countries. Do you think that's going to change over time? Um, look, unfortunately, I think the extreme polarisation of our discourse, unless, um, and this ties into much bigger societal issues, the economy gets back on track. People again find meaningful employment. Uh, housing becomes affordable, um, and and over time the heat goes out of the the political space. Um, hopefully things can gain, regain some sort of normalcy. But really, the way things are going at the moment, there's a lot of desperation, there's a lot of anger out there in the community. Um, I should mention, not always from people who are feeling the pinch. Many of these people are middle class, white collar, uh, white men and women in particular. Uh, such as the alleged um, individual who assaulted the um, was alleged to have insulted the chief minister. We're, we're seeing a change in the demo, in the demography 
of people getting involved in these movements. So it's important to also understand that people getting sucked in and pulled into these extreme anti-government movements aren't always the losers in society. There are people who are doing quite well who are buying into this. All right, Joshua Roos, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us on Hack. Thanks for your time. That was Dr. Joshua Roos, an expert in extremism from Deakin University, talking about threats and harassment of politicians in Australia. Plenty of text coming through on this one. Someone says politicians have been attacked, whether it's verbally or physically, for hundreds of years. It seems to come with the territory, unfortunately, but certainly not new. Callan from Wollongong says maybe if politicians actually made decisions that benefit the majority, then people wouldn't feel so strongly, so negative about them. Someone else says, I think these people that do these things just want attention. Just saying. Hack. Have you ever pulled like an all-nighter? Have, definitely. It's great. (laughs) A lot of rebels. On Triple Jack. Getting to that point in the year when you're approaching year 12 exams or maybe you're madly trying to get all your uni assignments in before the semester wraps up. If that's you, then you may have noticed that you're not sleeping right. You may be laying there calculating how much sleep you'll get if you fall asleep right now or just going over your notes for hours instead of shutting off. Well, a new survey has found that heaps of people suffer from stress-related sleep issues during exam periods. If this is you, then let me know. I'd love to hear how you've dealt with it. Message in on 0439 757 But first, Shalala Madora is here to explain what the survey found. If you're anything like I was at uni, you've left your assignment to the last minute and you're smashing energy drinks to try and stay awake to finish it. And exams, forget it. I'm not sleeping because I'm trying to cram... And then I'm staying awake when I should be sleeping because I'm worried I haven't studied enough. And look, that tracks with what a lot of you have told us. The nights leading up to an exam, you definitely, yeah, you're focusing on things. It's hard to fall asleep. You're especially staying up late nights, trying to get up in the morning early, trying to get as much content memorised and, yeah, it definitely messes with your sleep pattern. But, yeah, mostly stressful, not not as bad, but definitely like dreams that wakes you up in the middle of the night a few times, yeah. The best thing that you can do is just fall asleep um, a few hours earlier if you can before midnight um, and then just making sure that your sleep hygiene's on point. Yeah, so Reach Out Australia has conducted research with a thousand young people in Australia to understand the impact that study stress is having on their mental health and wellbeing. That's Jackie Hallen from youth mental health organisation Reach Out. They found some pretty alarming results from a recent survey of 16 to 25-year-olds. One of the findings that really jumped out at us is that 50% of young people reported that exam stress was having a major impact on their sleep. And that could be things like sleeping less, having difficulty waking up or even sleeping more. While we think burning the candle at both ends will help us during exams, Jackie says the short-term impacts of lack of sleep could do the total opposite. It could impact your performance in the exam, so it could actually impact your ability to kind of access the, all of that learning that you've done previously. It can impact things like your mood and that can flow on to affect um, things like your, your relationships. The stress and mental health impacts are particularly bad during the Year 12 exams. Like you wake up in a cold sweat after dreaming about those exams years later. 
I was walking down this like really long flight of stairs towards where my English exam was and I was not prepared in any capacity, hadn't remembered any content, didn't know what the exam was going to be about and I just woke up in the middle of the night having just night sweats and I was like, holy shit, I'm glad this was a dream. The stress leading up to it probably had like a bit of a, an after effect. Jackie reckons it's best to try and look out for your stress levels and mental health before even going into the exam room. Year 12 is a unique time because you can feel like you've been working towards this point. Some students may feel they've been working towards this point across their sort of school career. So I think that's why it's really important to, to be proactive about looking after your mental health and wellbeing whether it's for your year 12 exams or when you're um, at uni or TAFE or in other sort of stressful exam times. Hack Triple J. Shalala Medora there and a few people already offering up their solutions. Kylie in Melbourne says melatonin, not all the time, but it's great for short-term use. And Natalie in Canberra says she finds it really difficult to get to sleep, even with medication, uses essential oils, magnesium spray, white noise and meditation. Well, what else can you do when you're stressed and you're not sleeping at all? Dr. Moira Junger is the CEO of the Sleep Health Foundation. Moira, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Great to be here. Thanks, Tim. Look, when it comes to sleep, what do we need to be doing well? Is it just the amount of sleep that we're getting or is it also about the quality? Yeah, it's such a good question. Do you know it's less about the duration really than the quality and the timing and the consistency? So, in the definition of insomnia, for instance, there's no talk of hours of sleep. People have talked a lot about the duration rather than the other stuff that the sleep community know are, are probably more important. So that's good news for, for those of you who think you, you know you can't get more than six or seven, maybe six or seven is fine for you. So it's actually, we do recommend that people get, most adults need seven to nine hours across a 24-hour period. And there's some a lot of recognition though that anywhere between six hours and 10 hours is considered pretty normal. And we only know that because less than six hours consistently, like over the you know many, many months and many years, or more than 10 or 11 hours consistently is associated with more increased mortality and increased morbidity. Well, I did want to ask, when we are stressed about something, what, what, what is it that's actually stopping us from being able to sleep? Yeah, so the stre- when we're stressed about something, we're we have this increased arousal, we call it hyperarousal. We have increased adrenaline, increased cortisol circulating in our in our brain. And we, and the conditions for sleep is that we want reduced adrenaline, reduced cortisol, et cetera. Because when that's circulating, the brain detects that we're in some kind of danger. And so our primitive ancestors had that if there was a fire or a flood or a tiger, you know, outside the cave. And so you can't sleep when you're in danger. So that's so we're accidentally shooting ourselves in the foot with the stress, whether it's stress about exams or whether there's really, really like life or death stress. It's the same in terms of sleep. The, the sleep mechanisms don't work when there's circulating stress hormones or increased heart rate or increased body temperature or the things you've been doing, like you've been probably been moving around too much, you've probably been on the screens and you've had more stimulation and light, probably been eating and drinking the wrong stuff because you're stressed. So there's all these things that are sort of this perfect storm when we're stressed that means that sleep kind of shrieks away into the waiting in the wings, ready for the right conditions and the right signal. Another thing we heard about as well is the idea that people are dreaming about exams or about stressful times at work. Do we know why or how that feeds into people's dreams? 
it's quite speculative. There's not there's no one definitive answer to why we do that, but it's certainly caught up with the idea of the role of sleep being very strong in memory and learning. So you think about that, especially when you when you're swatting for exams. Um, of course, there's a lot of you, you know your brain's really preoccupied with that, and and so it's you it's just yeah it's just something that you've been kind of focusing on so much and it's almost like derailed into into your dreams as well because it's just been such a hyper focus during that day and your brain is trying to do this memory consolidation so it's sort of heightened in your dreams as well and it also in non-REM the content is sort of replayed and the, the brain is desperately trying to process that information to put it into your longer term memory for better recall the next day. This is Hack. I'm Tim Shepard. I'm chatting with Dr. Moira Junger, the CEO of the Sleep Health Foundation. We're talking about how young people are struggling to sleep during end of semester or year 12 exams. Now, I want to ask specifically about how we can try and get a better sleep because if we are in an exam block or a busy work period or something stressful in our lives, what should we do? Yeah, it's a really important thing that to make sure that you monitor your, the light in your eyes so that I mean that is the first thing you wake up in the morning, try and get out inside and have a walk or even a cup of tea or whatever you have for breakfast outside. And that's, and that's the same at the end of the, the, pre, at the end of the day in the pre-bed period. Make sure that you're in dim light conditions. So if you're in the bright light, like the overhead lights are all on, the house is all in bright light and you're in front of your computer as well, make sure that you dim the lights and have a night glow on your screen because you won't be able to have your melatonin. Melatonin will, won't be produced or secreted, and we need melatonin to sleep. I can't stress the role of the circadian system and the light-dark is the most important one. The other really important one, and we know that young people particularly, um, the causes of not sleeping is a racing mind and worry and stress. And so whatever you can do to manage that is a good idea. Like Make sure you try to have a bit of balance in life, talk to people about it if, you, if, you, if your worries are really sort of escalating and, you know, decreasing your quality of life. So try, trying to, you know, get involved with meditation or exercise or something or just chatting with friends, whatever it is that can actually reduce your worries and to get a bit of perspective and know that, you know, this time will pass. You know, tell yourself that this time will pass and that your your self-worth is not is not um, caught up in these exam results or, or whatever, or your ATARs and all that sort of stuff is really important to make sure just working out ways of managing stress. Yeah, so it's actually the external factors. There's something yeah. else which I do want to ask about, which is the use of technology to track sleep or to help you get a better sleep. So there's apps, there's mm-hmm. wearable watches and other devices. Are they helpful for people? Such a good question, Tim, because they it's really one of those things that they are sometimes helpful and sometimes a hindrance. And so people need to ask themselves do you think it's helping you like this monitoring and the management of it and sort of watching it all the time and being sucked into the numbers if that helps you and thinks it's good you know it's a good motivator it keeps you on track and you feel like your sleep's better for it then absolutely then I'm so happy to hear that and go for it and keep it up and like the same way that you might really enjoy watching the progress of your fitness via the same mechanisms but there's a quite a core group um, that monitoring actually makes things worse like it increases your stress you get you sort of think ah you know you get worried about the poor quality sleep you're having bear in mind that these sleep trackers at the moment they're getting better every year but at the moment the data is not that accurate it's pretty good the algorithms tell us when people are asleep and when they're awake pretty accurately except the actual stages of sleep 
So the depth of sleep, that that is, it's it's not that accurate in all cases. So there's sometimes, so don't worry too much about, don't get sucked into the numbers too much, but ask yourself really, 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 really reflect on your own. Like, does it help you or does it hinder you? It's probably the, the bottom line. All right, fantastic. Moira, thank you so much for coming on Hack. That was really helpful. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. That was Dr. Maura Junger from the Sleep Health Foundation talking about ways to help yourself get more sleep during stressful times like exam blocks. Hack. Great news. The writer's strike is over. On Triple Jack. Yeah, it's now been nearly five months since TV and movie writers in the US went on strike, but now a deal may have been reached to bring it to an end. The writers wanted the studios and the streaming services that produce their content to pay them better and agree not to replace them with AI. When combined with the actor strike, billions of dollars has potentially been lost from the economy in Hollywood. So what happens now? Is your favourite TV show coming back? Could it impact our movie and TV business as well? Claire Pullen is the executive director of the Australian Writers Guild. She's with me now. Welcome to Hack. Thanks for having me on. Can you just quickly remind us what the Writers Guild of America was fighting for over there? Yeah, sure. Well, look, I think a really important piece of context is this is now the longest writer's strike that we've ever had in the US. The last one before this was 2008-9, and that came in at 115 days. And as you said, we're now just shy of five months. Look, the issues at a really high level related to fair paying conditions, particularly around how royalties and residuals are paid. Uh, And one of the critical issues was artificial intelligence and how the studios intended to use that, not just for writers, but also for um, screen actors in other capacities. And look, it's been a long, difficult fight. There have been some really um, pretty terrible things said, frankly, by the studio executives. And at week seven, of the strike, it would have been cheaper at that point for the studios to pay the writer's claim in full. So we've had a long period of time with the studios just holding their ground and not wanting to deal. And do we know much about what this tentative deal includes? Like have the studios had to give in or has there been a compromise? Sure. Well, look, there's no details yet out. Uh, That is all still being thrashed out. Once the parties have landed on the principles, then they've got to go and work out what the words are that express those. Then the WGA have got to go through their internal processes around an elected leadership vote and a membership vote. So the short answer is no details yet. Um, And I think the, the statement that comes out, I suspect we'll get a joint statement from both the Guild and the studios, we're really telling about how it describes what happens. I don't expect we'll see words like concession from the studios. But frankly, given how much solidarity and strength the writers were showing and they were really clear that they'd stay out until they got what they wanted, I'd be surprised if there's been much capitulation from the Guild. And with the writers staying out for so long, can you tell us what impact that's going to have for, you know, the viewers of this content? Are we going to see a big lag where there's no new seasons of TV shows or no new movies for a while if this all goes back to work soon? Yeah, look, that hopefully it won't be too much in terms of delays. But the last time that writers went out on strike, the delays were pretty obvious. All of a sudden you had, you know, season four of your favourite TV show had two parts. There was a 10 part and then an eight part and everyone came back looking a little bit older and had slightly different hair. (laughs) So it will depend on the production. The other thing that's changed since the last time writers went out on strike was how long seasons and series are. It was the norm then to have sort of 20 or 22 or 28 part 
series. Now it's much more common to have a six or an eight part and your favourite show might only get two seasons. So it will just depend on the production, how far along it was and where they can pick up. And of course, the other thing that needs to be resolved is the SAG after strike because we don't have the actors back to work yet. Right. I was going to ask about that as well. Um, I also wanted to see that, you know, this has obviously brought the industry in the US to a standstill, but what about here in Australia? Because we do make TV and shows uh, and films for, for people overseas. Are we being caught up in it as well? Yeah, sure. So look, the industrial relations systems in the US and here in Australia are quite different. You know, one of the main issues for the WGA is always about health insurance, for example, and that's just not something that comes up for us right. given the Medicare in place. Uh, but the industry is really globalised. The deals and the money are all international, and particularly with the streamers, they operate in all the big developed screen countries. So there are some productions that paused here. There are some that went ahead. There are some that paused and people said, oh, that must be because of the strike, and it probably wasn't. It will very much depend on the terms of the deal and what happens next in terms of what everyone lands on. But it's a really good sign, frankly, that, um, both the parties, the studios and the Guild are talking about people going back to work as soon as possible. And I just want to ask, you mentioned the actors haven't struck a deal yet. So if the writers in the US go back, but the actors don't, could we see more work coming to Australia where our actors are working? Uh, look, it will depend on the terms of the deal. So I can't speak for the Actors Union. and You want to have a chat to the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance about that. But all the writers' guilds around the world um, have really carefully drafted solidarity clauses and instructions that we put out to make sure that we're not crossing a picket line and taking work that should go to a striking writer. And it's my understanding that the actors do as well. So it will really depend on how things go in the US about what the flow ones are here. All right. And really just quickly, we've only got about 20 seconds left, but is the Australian Writers Guild looking at what's going on overseas and wanting to discuss those conditions and pay here or with the overseas companies as well? Yeah, look, absolutely. I don't think we have a choice, particularly with the advent of AI and the international nature of the business. What happens in the US is going to flow here in some way. All right. Fantastic, Claire Pullen. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on Hack. Cheers, Tim. That's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast. Dave Marchese will be back tomorrow. I'll catch you later. Hack on Triple Jack.